You're listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things Civil War. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org, or follow us on SoundCloud or iTunes. We're here at the Civil War Institute Summer Conference in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, on the Gettysburg College campus, and my first guest is Dr. Rachel Sheldon, who is I think you're still a professor at the University of Oklahoma, but soon relocating to Penn State. So yes. congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, and we're going to talk about Rachel's book, Washington Brotherhood, Politics, Social Life, and the Coming of the Civil War, um, which is a fantastic book, not just because of the big points you make and the argument you make, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit, um, but you sort of, if you don't know anything about 1850s Washington DC this really gives you a good picture so can you just what did it what did DC look like sort of physically it's kind of a gross city and then get into a little bit if you can some of the if you were a congressman you know what did your life outside of you know being in a session look like so Washington is not what we think of today it was a place that only had one paved street Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, It did not have a good sewage system. There were animals that roamed the streets. Um, It was dirty. It was extremely violent. Um, And there were lots of different pockets, different neighborhoods of various people who lived there, Um, folks in the Navy, very large African-American population. Um, But the area that congressmen tended to live in was the one that was right between where um, the White House and the Capitol was at that time, still the same areas today. And uh, congressmen would live in hotels and boarding houses, houses that they rented from a proprietor. Usually two to ten congressmen would live in a, in a boarding house. And those lined the streets of Pennsylvania Avenue and right around there. Um, F Street was a particularly prominent uh, place where congressmen lived. And then right around the Capitol, just behind the Capitol where the Library of Congress is today. And uh, the congressmen formed these social groups. And um, it could be a church. It could be a social club. It, the Smithsonian is something you cover in your book. Yeah. Uh, and personal relationships were forged, which is sort of the center of your book and what these relationships meant. Um one of the groups you highlight, which is interesting because everything that involves Abe Lincoln is interesting, especially a, a young politician, yeah. Abe Lincoln, and, and is the Young Indian Club. Yeah. So through them, you sort of show the power that even younger congressmen can have in these small groups. Can you just talk, touch a little bit on that chapter and that yeah, group? So one of the things that I think we sometimes forget about politicians is that they were real people with real lives. They did lots of other things besides working as congressmen. They had religious lives. They had personal lives. Um, They were parts of lots of different kinds of organizations. The Masons, for example, were very prominent in the 19th century and had a lot of folks in Congress who were part of the Masonic order. Um, And the Smithsonian, as you mentioned. And then there would be all kinds of ad hoc groups of people who were interested in advocating for political 
issues, or in the case of Lincoln with the Young Indian Club, they were sort of a debating group that was specifically dedicated to the presidency, the potential presidency of Zachary Taylor. Uh, this was a group of politicians that included Lincoln. It also included Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederacy. Um, and Lincoln and Stevens became quite friendly in their time in the House of Representatives together. Uh, they enjoyed debating one another, and they had sort of similar temperaments, which is really interesting. Uh, so they were both really committed to the nomination of Zachary Taylor for the Whig Party, and they were part of this club that promoted him and um, tried to convince other folks in the House to support Zachary Taylor for the nomination. And, and it, so, I mean, that's the perfect example where these relationships uh, sort of transcend some of the, you know, you, if you look at it from the outside, you wouldn't think that Abe Lincoln and, and Stevens would be good friends, but they were. They were, and, yeah. Uh, and, and, and just to skip forward just for a second, but at the end of the book, you see it again a little bit. You know, obviously they have all these common friends when yeah. they're trying to make peace towards the end of the war. Um, now, it's not central to your book, but it was very interesting to see how the social life of a politician or a politician's wife looked in the 1850s. And there was a lot of protocol and tiring protocol and yes. a lot of great letters from particularly the wives um, and, and what their duties were. So can you talk a little bit about that? And and a New Year's Day seemed like oh, it was, it was totally a marathon. Nuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So women were actually really important to Washington, even though they weren't very much in Washington. So uh, Washington tended to be much more of an old boys club. Fraternity is a word I use pretty often in the book to think about what it was like to live there. But there were some women and they were super important. If your wife was there, she was required to call on anyone whose station was above your own. So if you were a member of the House of Representatives, your wife was required to call on every single senator's wife and every single cabinet member's wife and at the White House. And this was true especially on New Year's Day where you had to spend the entire day going from house to house paying your respects. Now, of course, once you visited each of these houses, they had to return those calls, and then you had to return their calls. So pretty much, if you were a woman in Washington, you spent all of your time going back and forth between these different callings, which was totally crazy at the time, if you can imagine what a woman's sort of life in Washington would have been like. Right, and, and getting in the carriage, going from place to place. And if you and if you missed one of these, it, you know, it, it was a slight that was taken very seriously. That's right. Not just personally, but, you know, politically could have ramifications. That's right. You did not want to snub necessarily someone's wife. Um, and if you did, it could have consequences. And this was this played out much more actually in the period before the time I'm talking about in my book, but um, the very famous Peggy Eaton yes. affair during the Jackson administration where um, cabinet wives shut out one of the wives of one of the other cabinet members. And it became a huge political scandal. And Andrew Jackson never forgave John Calhoun for his wife's role in that. And so this actually did have really important consequences. Um, so let's talk bigger here a little bit. Yeah. And, and what's so interesting, again, about the perspective is, and I, I can't think of the right word for it, but you take sort of, your argument is a ground up sort of mm -hmm. um, argument, but we're looking at the top as you, you know, you're making the argument. So it's, so it's very interesting and it's a different perspective. But uh, and again, these personal relationships play this part, central part in your book, but congressmen are ultimately a reflection of what's going on in the ground. Sure. Uh, and state by state and, you know, um, district by district. 
And so um, the argument that you make is that ultimately secession happens despite these personal relationships. They can only... There's only so much they can do in the end. So I know this is a, a big question, and it's a, it's your whole book, but could you just talk a little bit about your argument and sort of how you got there? Yeah. Well, so there's a really um, sort of longstanding argument in the political history of this period about the role of congressmen in the coming of the Civil War. And there's this old argument called the blundering generation argument that suggests that a blundering generation of politicians got engaged in these serious arguments over slavery, fire eaters and abolitionists especially. They argued it out in Congress and they broke up the nation. And my book really flips that on its head to say, well, yeah, they were arguing about it. And in, on the floors of Congress. Absolutely, they argued about it there. But that's not really what was going on behind the scenes. What was going on behind the scenes is that congressmen did not really have their finger on the pulse of what their constituents believed. They thought that they could create some sort of compromise even while their constituents were unhappy and even as they're feeding their constituents these nasty barbs about slavery. And they were wrong. They couldn't control what the people wanted and what the people wanted in places across the South was secession. And so they couldn't prevent it from happening. What's really important to understand about this is that there are sort of two Washingtons that are happening. There's the official Washington, the Washington that you get in the annals of Congress, right, in the Congressional Globe. And then you get what's actually happening behind the scenes. So congressmen would get up and give these fiery speeches on the floor of the House that had nothing to do with what was going on behind the scenes. Those speeches were aimed at people back home. They were trying to support what people back home believed in terms of their feelings, especially about slavery. But that didn't necessarily mean that if you were, for example, a congressman from New Hampshire and you were giving this fiery speech, you wouldn't be friendly with someone from South Carolina or Georgia, that would happen all the time. And so there was a difference between what was happening in the official capacity and what was happening behind the scenes. And there's a great word for what these speeches were in the 19th century. I wish we could bring it back because I think it's wonderful. Bunkum speech making. We shortened it now to bunk. That's bunk. But that's where it comes from. It comes from this idea that you are saying something not for the people around you, but specifically for your constituents back home. It's all part of this political theater that you, you keep talking That's about. Right. Uh, and, and one of the great examples that somebody you would think that would be hated, especially by Southerners, is uh, William Seward. Oh, yeah. Who by every standard is a radical, you know, abolitionist, friend of abolitionists, and he's actually quite liked. Uh, oh, William Seward is, he he's one of my favorite historical characters to look at because he's just such a fascinating person. He was quite radical in his own opinions. His wife was even more radical. She was a member of the Underground Railroad. She was very involved in um, abolitionist politics. But Seward himself is friendly with all kinds of Southerners and especially Jefferson Davis, who is one of his great pals during the late 1850s. And they spend lots of time together. Um, Their wives are quite friendly. And there's a relationship that develops there that doesn't necessarily have to do with politics, although if there are any kinds of insults on the floor of the Senate against Seward, which happened quite frequently because he was sort of a rabble rouser, often people would apologize to him later and say, well, you know, I just have to do that. I have to do that for my constituents. Right, right. And and there were cases where, um, well, it's so interesting that some of these speeches weren't even delivered and they were just given to newspaper men to print and uh uh, it, re- it really um, was enlightening to see that. Um, so um, 
the caning of Charles Sumner, I know people have looked at in the past as sort of this big moment. Not only is it just nuts to think about, especially in our day and age, that a, that a senator was caned almost to death on the floor of the Senate, but it was sort of looked at as this was one a turning point and this sort of um, sectionalism was there, but this sort of, you know, broke it wide open. And you, you take a, a somewhat of a different look and not that this was everyday life in Congress, but it was pretty damn close to it. Yeah. So a couple things to know about the caning of Charles Sumner. There is, again, the impact on the nation and the way that people were reading about it in newspapers and talking about it later, and then what was happening in Washington, D.C. So that's really important. A second thing that's really important is to recognize that we live in a much less violent time compared to what the 19th century was. It was incredibly violent. It was violent everywhere. And so violence was much more a part of the experience of living in the 19th century. So with that context in mind, in Washington, there were fights all the time on the House floor, on the Senate floor. There were fights on the streets of Washington. People threw bricks at one another. This was a much more common experience in Washington. And it was thought of very often as political theater. Now, that's not to say that Sumner was thrilled to be gained on the floor, um, but at the same time, it was something that was understood in the context of these extremely violent experiences. And a lot of folks from the North and South continued to have those relationships going forward, even though they had been friendly with Seward or they had been friendly with Brooks. Um, also have to remember that alcohol was involved with this. Brooks was very drunk when he came to Kenny It almost Sumner. started as a joke, you said yesterday, or sort of... Yeah, so it starts off... I mean, the, the um, story that I tell in the book is about how long the planning goes into this. And the more... The longer it takes, the worse it gets. So he starts off initially thinking, oh, I'm just going to confront Sumner. And then he's not able to see Sumner. Sumner sort of escapes from the Senate before he's able to get him. And then the next day, he tries to wait for Sumner at the top of the Capitol steps. Sumner comes by carriage and does not show up. And so the night before he came Sumner, he stays up all night drinking with a couple of his friends who are needling him about how terrible it is what Sumner has said. So by the time he actually faces Sumner, it's built up way more than it had been initially. And it could have been a very different experience if he had met Sumner that first day, maybe we would just be talking about shoving or some other kind of smaller incident. Not that it would have been meaningless, but it would not have taken on that kind of symbolism that it did. Right. Um, another character, and you've already mentioned him, but another character you spend some time in it towards the end of your book, and it's a fascinating few-day period for uh, Jefferson Davis. Yeah. And what that tells us about, you, you know, your argument and, and um, can you just what was Jeff, how was he feeling when he was leaving Washington, D.C. in January? So there's there's a real um, love of this community. You know, there's complaining, but there's a love. This is why I call it a fraternity. It really is sort of like that experience of being part of a group of people where you don't love everyone, but you have a solidarity about you. And Davis was totally mystified by the experience of needing to leave the Senate. And he was really compelled by his constituents. Now, that's not to say he was um, anti-slavery or anything of that sort. He absolutely supported um, white supremacy, and uh, he became the most fervent supporter, obviously, mm -hmm. of the Confederacy. But he was very sad to leave Washington, and especially his position 
position in the Senate. This was uh, his life's work. He had been a politician for many, many years. Um, he'd also been in the military, but he really believed in the power of this community. And in many ways, his sadness about this is reflecting the failure of the political system to contain what had happened. Uh, and this is a really good indication of how hard it was for congressmen to understand the speed at which secession was taking hold as a um, as something that white Southerners really wanted. And and, it, and and then it makes you look back at the whole 1850s and maybe through a completely different lens that you know, these personal relationships, as imperfect as all these compromises were, sort of forged, you know, th these compromises that staved off civil war until 1861. Yeah, so, I mean, this is all really tricky. Sometimes people read my book and they'll say, well, you know, I really wish we could go back to this time where congressmen got along so well. And I say to them, well, yeah, but they prevented a civil war from happening that ultimately right. freed four million people from bondage. So let's not get too excited about that possibility. The compromises that they made almost always made slavery stronger. And if we think about it from that perspective and the perspective of these congressmen were not really in touch with their constituents in the way that we might like them to be, um, and often there were people who had access to them that other constituents didn't, right? There was a, a smaller form of lobbying, but there was lobbying in this period. There was that kind of influence. And so I don't think there's a moral of the story. I think there are a lot of ways in which it's unfortunate that congressmen can't get along, but there are also a lot of ways in which, you know, it it is good to represent the feelings of your constituents and to care about that. Right. So, I mean, so that paints a very complicated picture. And, um, uh, you know, personal relationships are great in getting things done, like you said, but obviously not great in sustaining the terrible institution of slavery, which they did and, yeah. and, and for, for very long. Um, so with that, I, I want to thank you so much. Uh, Rachel Sheldon, who uh, wrote this great book, um, Washington Brotherhood, uh, the politics, social life, and the coming of the Civil War. It's been a very busy weekend, so I thank you so much for your time. Please check out our book, and thank you so much. Thank you. We're back at the Civil War Institute Summer Conference, and my next guest is Amy Mural Taylor, uh, who is a professor at the University of Kentucky uh, and the author of a brand new book called Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War Refugee Camps. Amy, thank you so much for joining me. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. Um, so this is a, a great book, and I think, um, well, there's a lot that, that we can talk about here, um, but your title is very telling and... Um, Maybe it's naive on my part, but refugee was never a term that sort of entered into my thinking when thinking about um, emancipation and, and slaves becoming free. Um, but it really, this is a massive dislocation. You say that several times in your book, and you said it in your presentation. So can you first talk about where I know that social history is sort of at the center of what you do? Was it these stories that you found first, or was it sort of this idea that you had first? How did this sort of book and this idea come together? Okay. Well, I think it was kind of in my head for years before I started working on it. And what happened was I wrote another book called The Divided Family in Civil War America, which is a completely different subject. 
But as you say, I'm a social historian. I really try to get into the stories of ordinary common people and how they just experienced this war. And what happened was I would just come across references to formerly enslaved people who were fleeing to Union Army camps and living there for as long as four years of the war. And I just kept making note of this, thinking, that's just not, that doesn't square with how I understood emancipation and how it played out. You know, what is, what is going on? What were they doing? What were they, how were they living this way? And so I just kind of kept it in my head and was not finding enough written out there to explain it to me, you know? And I think one of the gnawing questions for me was, how do you go from slavery to living inside an army encampment in the middle of a war zone in the hope of freedom? I mean, how do you do something so risky <laughs> right, right. in the course of seeking freedom? So it stuck with me for a while, but it was about 10 years ago. This was about a 10-year okay. book um, when I actually really got started. So I was probably just starting to work on it when I first met you at the University of Albany. Yes. 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 Um, and you were writing it in the midst of very sadly leaving us at the University of oh. Albany to go to Kentucky, as you mentioned in your yeah. in your book. So it must have been a labor of love that, that <laughs> took a lot uh, of, of time and energy. It has been, yeah. yes. Um, so you talk a lot about space, physical space, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a trunk that uh, uh, an enslaved couple owns where they keep just about everything they have, um, a hastily uh, constructed shelter on the outskirts of a Union camp. Um, why is space so important for yeah. a historian? Why space? Maybe it has something to do with like fighting over space. Is, is why is space important? Well, I mean that is the war was one big conflict and contestation about space, but that wasn't quite my entry point. Um, What I was trying to do with the book, what really struck me early on, kind of, I guess, getting back to what I was saying, like, how does somebody live like this for four years, live as a refugee? Um, I mean, it's a question of our times, too. How do people survive this? And I was really curious about the question of survival. How do they, men, women, and children, survive this existence? And that required thinking about just the most basic elements of life, food, clothing, and then I got on to shelter. And I started studying what they were living in, often started as cast off tents and then these hastily built shacks and and so forth. Um, And I found that by looking at these houses, there was actually a great deal of meaning surrounding them. And that's kind of what got me thinking about space. So in some places where uh, they were distant from active combat, they had a little more stability you start to see more deliberate planning going on to organize these camps and like where should the houses be in relation to white soldiers or uh, what size should each house be and so forth. And when you start digging into that, you see a lot of meaning, particularly about race at a really transformative moment in American history um, because these refugees themselves are building these houses and and locating them across space, but there are white officers, white missionaries, people who are realizing that they're basically, when they're building these houses, they're building the beginning of freedom, and they want to get it right, and they they realize there's a lot of meaning in how race plays out over space. It's really a theme in American history if you start thinking about racial segregation 
and so forth that comes later. Um, but just, you know, one example uh, we have in some places where these um, military officials want to make sure that the houses that are built are very small and would only fit a nuclear family, mother, father, child, because in their minds, that is the proper family structure of free citizens. So they're looking at this enslaved population, and in their mind, they don't see a population that's ready to necessarily to have full citizenship rights, but they're going to groom them, and they're going to manipulate these houses in space in a way that like grooms them for citizenship. Which is, and there's some very interesting uh, letters uh, in the book where the officers are talking about that. Yeah, explicitly. Yeah, 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 which was really surprising to me. So when you ask about how did you get into space, well, it's hard not to, it's hard to read those letters and not get sucked into, you know, wow, they're paying a lot of attention to the arrangement of these camps. Right, right. Yeah. Um, So um, Benjamin Butler is a very interesting character. Mm -hmm. And I think I even back, we talked about him a little bit in in one of the classes that I was fortunate enough to take with you. Um, And he sort of, through him, I think we can largely see the thinking of uh, the Union Army and officers early on in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in some cases, it, it, it shifts, but he sees and he uses the term contraband. Uh, he, he, I think a few ex- escaped slaves wander into his camp and, well, not wander, I think they went there on purpose. Sure, yes. Um, and he sees an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's a great opportunity for these slaves, too, to get away from their master. So in this case, uh, there's a lot, there's aligned interests, but those interests don't always align throughout the war in general. Right. So can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I know it's a big question, but... Yeah, but uh, about Butler or yeah. about... Well, but, Butler and then... Yeah, I mean, Butler is really interesting. Um, not an abolitionist. He's not very progressive on race and emancipation. But he is, I guess you would say, he's very pragmatic, and he's pretty political. And, you know, he was first in command in Maryland, right, when the war breaks out. And some men, women, and children are running into Union Army lines there, and he sends them back. And in his mind, this is Maryland is a Union state. You know, the laws of the Union apply, including the 1850s Fugitive Slave Act. It is his responsibility to send them back. Well, then by mid-May, about May 21st, I think, he's sent to Fort Monroe, Virginia. Slaves start to run to the lines. This time, instead of sending them back, he decides to keep them in, as you say. Um, And in Butler's mind, well, everything had changed because now they were in a Confederate state. And there was something for the Union to gain by uh, allowing these people in their lines. So he's very pragmatic. So you can see he's not like driven by a particular ideology of anti-slavery necessarily. Right, right. You know, it's very practical with him. Um, And in his initial order, allowing them in the lines, he sees like there's a a common benefit. There's, um, you know, a merging of of interests between this enslaved population and the union because the union is going to get labor and this population is going to get protection from slavery. So it all kind of melds together. Um, this is a way of kind of viewing the relationship between the army and enslaved people that would be then shared by other union officials. And you can see it in Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation uh, about two years later, where, I mean, Lincoln comes right out and says, this is a military necessity to free enslaved people. It really benefits the army uh, to free enslaved people. There's this, again, alignment of interests. But 
you know, both of them are operating at this very sort of theoretical level almost, you know, when they're issuing policies. They're thinking big picture, th thinking in an abstract way. And in that sense, yeah, there is an alignment of interests. But what I write about in the book is the way in which on the ground in everyday life, um, there are many, many conflicts between the army and enslaved people. You know, sometimes the enslaved people or I should call them refugees because they've left slavery, mm -hmm. but they, you know, they need shelter. You know, they need to occupy certain buildings to at least have shelter. But then suddenly the army brings in all a huge number of new soldiers. Well, they need that space. And suddenly there's this great contestation back up to space right. <laughs> over space again. And so there you see kind of a collision of their interests. And, you know, that sounds kind of minor, but when you're somebody who has left slavery, you're trying to imagine the future, you have your children, you're trying to at least you know, find a place to sleep and roof over your head, protection from the elements, it's a big deal to lose that shelter. It is, it is. So, and that would set back their journey to freedom. And and I think that the the the, the big couple that you follow is the Whitehurst, mm -hmm. and, and this mm -hmm. is their story, really. I mean, yeah. hope, and, you know, they're able to open their own business, and yeah. and then yeah. gone, gone. And, and, and so uh, did you, so t can you just talk a little well, bit about you that? Know, I mean, yes. So I write about this couple, Edward and Emma Whitehurst, who they flee um, right by in the area of Fort Monroe, that Virginia Peninsula, you know, just a few days after Benjamin Butler's order. So they're one of the first people to flee into Union Army lines. And one of the first things that they do is they open up a store, which I just found really remarkable. Um, not something I expected somebody coming out of slavery to do. But uh, for reasons I explain in the book, they had been able to accumulate some money during slavery and they saved it and um, were able to then use it to open the store. And you know what? It makes, a, I mean, I was surprised at first, but it makes a lot of sense because, and this was true with, with everybody who fled to Union Army lines. The first, one of the first things they're thinking about is how they're going to support themselves. You know, they did not immediately assumed the army was just going to take care of them. And they certainly didn't want to become dependents of the army. Um, that was a pretty foreign, scary force to them. So they're trying to take, you know, to support themselves and they've got to make money. I mean, it's pretty basic. Right. right. So, um, so I tell their story and their story like others and is really true with almost everybody. It's not a straight linear path from slavery to freedom. And um, when we talk about this sort of collision between the army and free and, and refugee uh, people, they experience that in a pretty major way. Right. Um, and I'll just, I won't give it all away, but sure. I'll say that uh, the store is very vulnerable mm -hmm. during the war. I, I think that we all, mm -hmm. um, at least at some point in our lives, like, like to think of emancipation as this sort of made for TV moment, yeah. um, you know, where <laughs> literally you know, a troop troops come onto the, the plantation mm -hmm. and say, you're, you know, you're free. I, yeah. mean, there, I did a previous podcast with somebody who uh, wrote a book about uh, Gordon Granger, who was a union general. And it sounded like it was somewhat like that in Texas. So, but the, 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 the idea there is that it was different all over mm -hmm. the place. Yes. And, and, yes. and, and the um, refugees you're talking about are in a constant struggle for, for this freedom. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the entire four yes. years of the war. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you make a really important point um, that this history of emancipation absolutely varies by place. 
and even just the the refugee part of the story, um, what I'm talking about affected about 500,000 people, one eighth of the enslaved population. Even that history is very different from place to place, depending on what's happening in the war, what's happening militarily absolutely changes the situation. That brings us to Kentucky, and yeah, you know, oh. and there's so much, there's so much time that you could spend on Kentucky, yeah. and and as Lincoln said, and you point out in your book, the whole game, and so, you know, you could see, um, really, where Lincoln's thinking is that again, the emancipation doesn't free slaves in the border states, mm-hmm. um, Kentucky being one of the most important border states, and you talk about all of that sort of through. Uh, Gabriel Burdett, oh. a very interesting character, mm-hmm. um, who he had some sort of, he was a, a preacher, mm-hmm. a, an enslaved preacher, but he, he had some ability to sort of, you know, uh, mold his sermons and 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 uh, have relationships with his parishioners. But the war brings this, you know, opportunity and then lost opportunity, mm-hmm. and I think he ends up in the U.S colored troops at, uh, at the end of the war. He does, and he assumes a leadership position at Camp Nelson, which becomes one of the sites of these refugee settlements. Um, but yeah, his story, on the one hand, it's a story of how long and protracted this process was in the state of Kentucky. You know, this Union slaveholding state where uh, I would say the Union and Lincoln in particular kind of bent over backwards to placate slaveholders in Kentucky. And so emancipation really played out, as I say in the book, in the slowest of motion there. Um, Many, many people ran into Union Army lines, you know, for several years and kept getting expelled and sent back, even though at the very same moment, they're being accepted into Union Army lines in other places. Gabriel Burdett, he first enters Union Army lines um, not because he ran off voluntarily, but he was impressed by the Union Army. You know, here's the union. On the one hand, they're expelling people, won't let them come in voluntarily, but they're willing to take enslaved men from central Kentucky and pay their owners for their labor. And that's how Gabriel Burdett first got into Union Army lines. Eventually, um, he did enlist, as you say, and became a free person. But his story also gets us into religion and the way in which religious faith becomes so important, Um, not to everybody, but to... Uh, quite a few who are experiencing the, all the setbacks we started to talk about, um, you know, illness and disease and and uh, fighting and combat, everything that is sort of getting in the way. And yet they still keep coming into Union Army lines. Like there's there's a degree of, of hope there. And I, you know, religious faith really plays a role. Um especially what's interesting to hear some of these ministers like Burdett talk about um, is the biblical story of Exodus and the way in which they start comparing what they're experiencing to the Exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, who experienced this long protracted period of suffering uh, before they reach the promised land. And that's how some of them view their time in the refugee camps, you know, that maybe they're suffering, but the promised land is coming. Right, right. And to sort of understand how they could do that, you have to really sort of get into um, their religious mindset. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you talk a little bit about your sources and the bureaucracy of the Union Army, which mm-hmm. is, <laughs> it's huge. Sure, uh, yeah. And, and I imagine mm-hmm. that it was a treasure trove of, of stuff for you to go through. And that there's probably still a lot more stuff out there. Um, 
So what else are we potentially going to get from, I mean, those sources have been out there. I know people have gone through them before, but not with this sort of yeah. aim to talk about this wartime chaos, yeah. not, not of the soldiers, but of the enslaved people yeah. seeking freedom. So, you know, I did look at wide range of sources, missionary records, right. newspapers and so forth, but the military records were really so crucial. And as you say, they're huge. Yes. It's, a, it was a huge bureaucracy. And I mean, I can't even tell you <laughs> how many records there are at the National Archives. I mean, just the records of the Army Continental Commands alone, thousands and thousands of boxes. Um, it's actually amazing to me what record keepers, local Army clerks were in a time of war. I mean, they, you know, duplicates of orders and lists of who were receiving rations and lists of who uh, were laboring for the army. Um, it is a treasure trove, but it's also just a mountain. Um, this is the collection that, if anybody's familiar with the official records of the War of the Rebellion, so that over 100 volume published series that was done um, at the turn of the century, they, that, source was extracted from what's at the National Archives, but it's a very small percent of what's at, actually at the archives. So that just gives an idea um, of how much is there. What else will we find? I mean, I think um, there's a lot of more in-depth work that could be done simply on African-American military labor mm. for the Army and all the different kinds of work and um, when they were paid, when they weren't paid, that was a problem. I mean, you get um, into it a little bit. I do. They weren't paid a lot, you know. Yeah. Sometimes or they not were at promised all. a decent yeah. amount and yeah. not actually paid. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a lot to do about the labor that African American people provided to the Union Army. I think it's far more significant than we've given it credit for right. to the Army's success. Uh, so that's one area. And I think um, I get into some of the material culture of the army and camp life, you know, houses, as we talked about, uniforms, um, food, you could think of as material culture. I think there's still a lot more to do about that. A lot of these records, they seem really dry. I mean, a list of people who receive rations, at first you open it, you're like, oh, you know, it's just, it's a list of names and a bunch of like hash marks and columns, and it doesn't really jump out at you as telling a story. But when you really start to look at more of it and start thinking about it, there really is a story there. And, uh, so I'd like to see more work done there, too. I'm particularly fascinated, and I think I have been for a while, with the border states and mm. um, Missouri and Kentucky. And I know we're going backwards, but John C. Fremont in 1861 oh. and what he does in Missouri. And that, you know, looking into that, I think, gives you real clear understanding of what the war was about initially and sort of mm -hmm. how um, uh, people shift and, and things shift. And, and mm -hmm. I think you bring a lot to the surface in terms, in terms of, um, why it made sense for Butler to take on mm -hmm. some escaped enslaved people and then how it sort of grew a little bit. And, and, and there was sort of a, you know, yeah. up and down kind of yeah. thing. So. And then Fremont tries to do it and even free them. And Lincoln yeah. says, no way, no way, you know, in a union state. So, I mean, again, I mean, I think that that takes us to, um, the first couple years of the war are far more interesting when it comes to emancipation than we have given it credit for. Because I think we oftentimes jump to the proclamation or jump to the post-proclamation period. So 1863. But in fact, there's so much going on in those first two years as the union's trying to figure out how it's going to approach this issue. Um, and so 
I guess getting back to more work, I'd love to see more done on that as right. well. But. Well, even county by county, because oh, you know yeah. you go into Virginia yeah. now, and in you know a county over, you might the emancipation might it applies apply, and then it might not. And you then know. In other places, no. Right, and yeah, the, and then as you said, you know, union the union army is trying to figure out who it actually applies to, and they, and they're nobody just has confused. ID cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, now, uh, how is Kentucky? Uh, I know this is a, mm-hmm. this is going to maybe be the toughest question of the whole interview, but you were a huge part of the U all, especially for my experience at the U Albany History Department, and your loss was felt um, deeply. Oh, and you're sweet. So, so I hope Kentucky is is a great university, <laughs> and I and and I know you um, you've won a, a teaching award there, which I could speak personally to is well deserved. Thank you. One of the best teachers. Uh, that I've that I've ever had, and if I've ever even made the smallest contribution to this kind of work, it's because I had you as a professor. Oh, thank so you. Can you just talk a little bit about what's going on at the University of Kentucky and and uh-huh. sort of the program there? Yeah, well, let me like dry my tears first. Oh. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, that was very sweet. Um, so Kentucky, you know, first of all, I miss Albany and all my friends there. Um, it was a, a great place to teach. When I moved to Kentucky, though, I did move closer to this history. And I actually moved down the road about 30 minutes from Camp Nelson, Kentucky, which was is one of the camps that I write about. Um, so the move did enabled me to do a little bit more research on the ground. And um, I now actually, you know, hang out at Camp Nelson and, um, you know. Um, <laughs> You're a regular. <laughs> I'm kind of a regular out there. I've had, you know, interns, supervised interns working out there and um, that sort of thing. So um, I, I'm able to do a little bit more field work, you might say, right. with students in particular, which is really meaningful to me. Um, I also have taken students out to an antebellum plantation, and we did a project where we were um, helping them research the lives of enslaved people there because they didn't really know very much. And we created a whole new exhibit for this house. Um, that uh, has now changed their slavery interpretation. So there's the kind of ability to not just do research, but to maybe even have some impact on the public history um, there, which, um, you know, has been valuable and meaningful. Right. Yeah. Uh, I want to thank you so much for doing this. I know know it's a a crazy and it's a busy weekend, but... uh, Oh, this is like the highlight. Thank you. Well, thank you for doing (laughs) it. I enjoyed your book and... um, Embattled Freedoms, uh, Embattled Freedom, which, again, you just have to look at the title to sort of get an idea. Embattled yeah. Freedom journeys through the Civil War's refugee camps. And, of course, there are a lot of parallels to not just today, but any day. I mean, you think about refugees, and at least for me, you, there's a very vivid picture in your mind. And yeah. It's not a good one. I mean, it, it's yeah. um, and, and it's sort of a... Um, a struggle that lasts and endures. So, yeah. uh, and I think that's important to take away from this. There's book. a lot of resonance to today. Yes. Uh, so, Amy, thank you once again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.